Well, guys, open up your Bibles uh, to Mark chapter 12. Uh, we are still plugging along here in our series in uh, Mark. Um, I had a friend uh, uh, who used to say and still does say, um, clarity is kind. Think about that. Clarity is kind. No matter what, clarity is always kind. Now, I think we all want clarity. The hard part is that we don't always get it. Right? You're in a relationship and like you want clarity. Let's define that baby. Let's put the boundaries on. Let's figure out what's going on here. Do you like me? I like you. All those sorts of things. When we're talking about clarity at work, we want to know what our, what our job is. We want to know what success is going to look like. We're going to know what are the things that I need to do to maybe move up um, the, the scale, the pay scale, or to move up the influential scale. Um, we want clarity in our vision and purpose as an individual. Uh, and, and in life, we want to know which direction that we're going. Uh, one night, I was driving down uh, Route 6, and it was probably the, the foggiest day or night that I've ever driven. And anybody driven down Route 6, and it's just like you can't see anything in front of you? Like, man, it was dark. Like, we had just gotten uh, a different vehicle, and I was like, I'm going to go test out the car and see what it feels like at night. We've already driven in the day. And so I'm driving like, wasn't expecting this. There is fog just everywhere. I can't see anything. The fog lights aren't working. I'm flipping the high beams, the low beams. I can't see anything. The only thing that worked is when I would just like look down right in front of my bumper at the white line. You ever had to drive like that? And like the only thing that I could see was that line. And so I'm just like tucked in close to that line, driving as slow as I can, and not hoping that nothing jumps out and, 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 and hits the car. Um, but I'm staying tucked in. It was the only thing that I could see. I never want to drive through fog like that again. I mean, it, it just, it's dangerous, it's scary, it's not clear. But when the fog starts to lift, it's easier to see where you're going. Would you agree? It's easier to see when the fog begins to lift in whatever situation of life that you're in, whether you're driving a car, you're in a relationship, you're at work. When the fog begins to lift, it's easier to see. Clarity is important. Clarity is, is kind. Right now, we're living in a time of life where things aren't very clear, right? Morality and faith are becoming a little bit foggy in, in the public square. Uh, making the right choice in the midst of all these cultural tensions is becoming a little bit foggy. Um, the, the, how do we navigate, like, the government and the church and how, how do Christians navigate in those two worlds? That feels a little bit foggy and squishy and we don't know what we're doing. Taxes, Right? Like, it's tax season. Anybody done with your taxes already? Got them turned in? Yeah, a few of you overachievers. Yeah, we'll, we'll get there. The rest of us, we're dragging behind, but we're, we're going to get it done because we have a deadline, right? We're not procrastinating. We just know when the deadline is. Everyone just kind of gets grumpy when tax season kind of rolls around. We're like, why do we have to do this? Um, what, what's, what's the deal with this anyway? Um, why do I have to give my money away? Um, when things are foggy, it's sometimes hard to see. And what matters most begins to get clouded out or maybe even becomes a little bit twisted. And so this morning, what we want to do is we want to help clear the fog a little bit on this, uh, this idea of, of, of church and the government and navigating through that. Not because we just want to talk about the government, it's because that's where we're at when we read the text. And so that's what it leads us to. And so Jesus, I think, speaks into this tension between two different kingdoms, that we have this kingdom of the world 
And in the kingdom of the world, you have kings and rulers and patriarchs and and presidents who are ruling in that realm, whether they be elected or they be self-proclaimed and appointed dictators. That's the kingdom of the world that we're partially living in. And then you have the kingdom of God that's led and it's governed by God himself. And as people who have trusted Jesus as our Lord and Savior, we've got to understand that we're living in both of those arenas. That we're living in the kingdom of God as believers, but we're also living in the kingdom of, wor- of the world. And we've got to try to figure out how do we navigate between both of those. Um, and sometimes it feels foggy. Sometimes it feels difficult. But one thing that makes it easier is when the fog begins to lift and things become a little bit clearer. So we want to look and see what Jesus says here. Um, If you are just now joining us for the first time at Riverview, or if you haven't been here for a while, we are in the book of Mark, and we've been going through a series called Tethered. Um, And what we have said is, uh, or what we've been looking at, we've been watching how 12 of these guys, these disciples, have hitched their wagon to Jesus because Jesus has pulled them in, and we're watching um, how Jesus is teaching these guys. He's showing them what it looks like to be tethered to him. He's showing them what it looks like to live their best life, and their best life that they're ever going to live, it's not going to be detached from him it's going to be in connection and in community with with him and the person who finds their life in Jesus is never going to be disappointed and so we've been watching these guys travel along with Jesus in these different scenarios of of miracles and healing and frustrations and and uh, all this tension and there's a growing process that these guys are going through and Jesus is walking them through that and so I want to set the scene here for where we're at Jesus he's been teaching Uh, And he's been performing miracles all throughout Judea and Galilee to this point. And because of that, his popularity has grown, right? If you start doing miracles, people are going to start walking beside you like, let's check what this guy's doing. Let's check what this guy's or this gal's doing here. His popularity has begun to grow. And that's made the religious leaders very edgy. That they are on the edge of their seat, they're, they're nervous, they're jealous a little bit because they saw Jesus getting all this attention from all the other people and now he's become a threat to their power and to their popularity. And so by this time, when we get to this point in the text, this tension's been building, it's about to percolate over. And so you've got a, a grumpy group, a bunch of religious leaders who are just looking for ways to kill Jesus. I think we've got uh, evidence of them from the first century. Yeah, it's a first century picture right there uh, of, of Jesus fighting with these guys. The tension's been building, right? It's like an old percolator. Uh, anybody have a, a coffee pot in your house that's like a percolator? It's not K-cups. It's just like, you know, baby begins to bubble up. Uh, I, yeah, there you go. Like, I, I, I grew up um, in, in Ohio, Southern Ohio, and my grandma, she had this little uh, uh, chrome percolator, and every time that we were there, like, that, it always smelled like coffee. It was always percolating. It was, it was always bubbling up. The tension that's going on here uh, in, in Galilee, right down in Jerusalem right now, it's been bubbling up like a percolator, and it's at the surface, and now it's getting ready to blow. And so these leaders, these religious leaders, they keep coming after Jesus and they've got plans to try to discredit him and they eventually want to have him killed. So I want to read these five verses here and and then we're going to swing back and talk about it, okay? So we got Mark chapter 12, starting in verse 13. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and they said to him, teacher, We know that you're true and don't care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, 
why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one and he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. There's been a lot of tension up to this point. There's been back and forth between the religious leaders and Jesus. Last week in verse 12, um, we, we, we read that they were looking for a way to get him arrested. But the religious leaders were afraid. And they were afraid because of the people who were around, because of the popularity that he had. A few weeks ago, which would have been a couple days here in the text, we read that they wanted to kill him. But they were afraid. They were looking for a way to do that. And now here again, you have these religious leaders who are plotting against Jesus, looking for a way to get rid of him. But this time, the leaders, they bring an interesting powerhouse group of people, people that you would never expect to be together. You have the Pharisees, and you have a group called the Herodians. I don't want to spend all of our time on this, um, but I do think it's important to kind of flesh out the difference between these groups, right? Because last week or, or two weeks ago, we had the elders and the chief priests and, and those guys who were in the room. They've gone and they've got a couple other people in the room. And so you've got the Pharisees and the Herodians. Now, the Pharisees are the religious elites. They are what would be considered the varsity team when it comes to, religi to, to religious matters. They, they are the guys who, who are supposed to know everything. They know the law of Moses better than anybody else. They were super strict. They were tight on the law. Um, they created some of their own laws to help protect from getting even close to breaking the law. Uh, they knew the right ways to behave. Um, they knew what made a person righteous in their eyes. But here's the deal. And throughout the book of Mark and throughout the New Testament, you see Jesus railing against the Pharisees time and time again. And the problem is that, uh, that they are um, following their own traditions, Jesus says, rather than following the commands of God. That's an issue. When you start making up your own rules, instead of following the rules of God, now you've got an issue. And so Jesus was taking them into task. And then on the other side of the room, you have this group called the Herodians who were uh, kind of like the representatives of, of Herod Antipas, who was um, the ruler in the, the region of, of Galilee uh, during, during the time of Jesus here. He, he was the big dog. And so the Herodians were a group of people who became informants for Herod. Um, we would consider them the mole, right? Uh, but they, were, they weren't hiding in the room. They were just walking around, keeping tabs on, on everything. They kept a pulse of what was going on throughout Galilee. And if there was anything that just kind of felt like it was off, they would go and they would report it to Herod. Like, hey, you probably need to check into this. This is how John the Baptist ended up in jail. Um, because the Herodians went and told people, or went and told Herod that there was an issue out in the desert that he should probably be aware of. And so Herod said, well, let's just get, let's just fix this. And so John gets thrown into jail. It was the Herodians doing. The whole idea of the Roman government at the time was that they were in control and they strived for peace. And uh, it was something called the Pax Romana, the, the Roman peace. And the idea of that peace wasn't just like, hey, you know, hippie 70 kind of stuff, everybody peace, love, and that kind of thing. It was peace at the extent of cruelty to the people. If you acted up, if you said something that you weren't supposed to say, they just, they, they got rid of you. They, they killed you. They killed whatever was, was breaking up that, that peace. And so the Jewish people who were living under that rule, they hated it. Um, they couldn't do anything about it. But they hated it. They hated living under that rule. And so you have these two groups here. You have the Jews and you have the, the Herodians or some of the same groups, coming from the same lineage. 
And they're tag teaming here now. And it's weird because these two groups aren't normally seen hanging out together and they're usually not on the same side of the street. They, they hate each other. The Pharisees hate the, the Herodians because they think they're traitors and they're breaking the law. The Herodians, they hate the Pharisees because they're always busting their chops and they're always on their back saying, you're doing it wrong, you're doing it wrong, you're doing it wrong. And nobody wants to be around the person who says, you're doing it wrong, you're doing it wrong, you're doing it wrong. So these two groups, they hate each other. But in this particular sense, the enemy of my enemy becomes my friend because they both want to get rid of Jesus for different reasons. And so they begin to work together. And the Jewish leaders, they know <clears throat> that if they want to kill Jesus, they can't do it on their own. They're going to have to have the stamp of approval from the Roman government. So the only way to do that is to get the Herodians involved so it can make its way back to Herod, who is the government right now at the time. And so the chief priests, they go and grab these two groups and they start asking Jesus questions. And verse 13 says that they trap, they try to trap him uh, they try to trap him. And the word trap there, it is literally this picture of a hunter out setting a trap for a wild animal, waiting for him to, the, the animal to be caught in the trap or into the snare so that an animal could be killed. It is basically, it's prey for, for the hunter. And so right now, their intent is to do the same thing that a hunter would do with an animal who gets caught into a snare. They want to trap him so that they could kill him. Jesus has become their prey to get rid of. And so they asked this question and it's a trap and it's a setup. And so what we're gonna see here in these, these few verses, we're gonna see just a couple things that it, for us to get our handles on it. Um, we're gonna see a question that's asked of Jesus. We're gonna see Jesus answer that question. And then we're gonna see an application for us and how we can make this stick in our lives. Okay, so the first thing we have here, it's the setup question. It's the question that these, these two groups come and ask Jesus with here in verse 14. You guys with me? And they came and they said to him, teacher, we know that you're true and don't care about anybody's opinion. For you're not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? That's the question that's on the table here. And so can we just be honest here? Okay. Most people can sniff out a fake, right? Like, you know if somebody's trying to fluff your feathers. You know if somebody's trying to blow smoke. You, you, you just know, you can, you can feel it, you can sense it. You know if somebody's got hidden agendas. Like, hey, can we meet? <laughs> you know, right? You know what's coming. And you, you know, like, oh, we know that you're the, 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 the person who doesn't care about appearances. We know that, that, that your word is true. Like, yeah, Really? Is that why you're, you're here to fluff the fake? Like we know we can, we can snip out a fake and when there's a hidden agenda. It's not fooling anybody. And I, I think that kind of makes us sad when, when people think that they can fool you in that way. Here, Jesus, he's not fooled. He knows the deal. This is another setup question that the religious leaders are bringing to the table for him. They don't care about him. They don't care about what his response is going to be. They're trying to get Jesus to, to trip over his words so that he can make the crowd who's been following him around so they will get mad at him. And if they can't make them mad, it, maybe they can get him to trip over his words to say something against the Roman government. And if he says something against the Roman government, that's the nail in the coffin. Then he goes and he dies. That's what they're after here. They want to see him killed. So if he says, yes, pay the taxes of Caesar, then the people who have been rallying against the Roman government, 
they're going to be up in arms because it looks like Jesus is going to be validating and stamping approval on the Roman dominance over the Jews. And so it's going to look like Jesus is in cahoots, or at least he's a supporter of the Roman dominance there. That's what happens if he says, yes, pay your taxes. But if he says, no, it's not lawful to pay the taxes, there's another side of the coin here. Then all the Romans are going to want to kill him too, because He's rejecting then the Roman rule, and it's going to look like then he's going to be an insurrectionist. And it's quite, and it's quite clear, you know, in a, in a few days of his time here in the passage, that that's what he's going to go to the cross for, right? He's going to go to the cross for being an insurrectionist. It's ultimately going to work in the favor of the religious leaders and what they were wanting to, to, play, to play out. It's just not happening yet in this sense. And so for Jesus, this feels like a no-win situation. You ever been in a conversation like that? Like, I, I just don't know, like... What am I supposed to say? Because if I say this, I lose. If I say this, I lose. But I want to say something here. Just because someone invites you into a fight, it doesn't mean that you have to show up to that fight. It may be all that you need to hear this morning. Just because somebody invites you into a fight, it doesn't mean that you have to show up and fight the fight that they want you to fight. There are so many times where people uh, try to pull people into uh, task with one another to fight against each other. And then the, the sad thing is, is we take the bait. They bait us into these conversations that we don't even want to be in, and we start fighting with each other. The, the longer that I'm in leadership, and, and the longer that I just live as a, as a human being, um, I'm just learning there's no shortage of opinions, right? There's no shortage of people wanting to fight about what their opinion is if their opinion differs from your opinion. There's just no shortage of it. And so people are willing to fight over just about anything. And so I'm learning to ask myself, and, and maybe this is a question that you learned a long time ago, but I'm just becoming hip to the game, okay? I'm learning to ask this question. Do I agree with the premise of the question? Do I agree with how they're setting the question up for my answer? Does the, the question or the issue at hand, is it really a, a this or that type of situation? Is there really only two sides to this or is it multifaceted and, and, and there's more nuances around that? Because a, a, lot of, a lot of questions get posed like this is either you agree with me or you disagree with me. And there's no room for nuance in between, right? It, it's it's got to be one or the other and, and there's no room to, to have a different of, of opinion. And, and so that sometimes makes our conversations in our culture feel a little bit foggy. How do we respond when it feels like a this or that? And I don't think it's a this or that. And, and sometimes it leaves you feeling like you're backed in, into a corner and you don't know what to say. Um, but you don't have to agree with the premise of the question. I, I think in our world right now, um, we could consider like those questions sometimes are trolling. Y'all familiar with trolling? My kids try to troll me all the time. And, and like, when did this happen? Like you used to be this little and you just listened to what I say, but now you like try to pull me into an argument just to, just to get me riled up. And it works, you know? But, but I think some of, this is, some of this is just trolling. Like we see it all the time. Somebody posts something that's edgy or that's, that's a loaded question with tension on social media. And, and, and then all of a sudden, people are fighting back and forth. And the person who wrote the post are just sitting back with their arms crossed and just watching this dumpster fire take off. Like, are you kidding me? Like, why? Like, you don't even care about that, so why are you fighting? I had a theology professor when I was uh, in, in seminary that I just loved. I loved his teaching. He was a bit pessimistic. I didn't love that necessarily. Um, and, but the way that he came to the text and the way that he broke some things down and, and helped wrap our mind around what we were reading um, was really helpful for me. Absolutely loved it. 
And so once I got out of seminary and, and like the, the social media world started kicking in a little bit more and you start following people and what they say and all, caring a little bit too much about what others say, I was following him on social media. And then he started posting these, these loaded questions that he would just throw them out there. And, and then you would watch people just go back and forth and, and, and fight with each other. And I watched him, he was baiting people into these conversations that he didn't care about. He just wanted to see how people landed and how people would fight against this. How often do we get trolled in situations like that and pulled into conversations that we don't really care about? How often do we feel backed into a corner? How often do we stop and say, you know what? Do I agree with the premise of the question? Like, is, is, is this the only way to look at this right now? So in this conversation or in this questioning that these Herodians and Pharisees are throwing at Jesus, he doesn't take their bait. He's not living in their single horizontal playing field. There's, there's something different going on that Jesus sees the whole, the whole shebang. And so he refuses the premise of the question. So let's talk now then about taxes. <laughs> Does that sound fun? Let's, let's, let's talk about taxes. <laughs> taxes are a big deal, Right? It's not just, they're not just a big deal right now. They've always been a big deal. It's not just been April 15th that we're fighting against. Um, it goes all the way back into the first century and, and beyond, right? The, the tax that they're talking about here is the annual poll tax or the census tax. Um, and it was a big debate then. It's not just an issue of I want more of my money than the government gets of my money. It's not like do I get a refund and do I have to pay in this year? This issue of the tax was an issue of, are you going to be loyal to Rome or are you going to be loyal to the kingdom of God? That was the debate. That's the question that's at hand. Are you going to be loyal to Rome or are you going to be loyal to God? Because they thought, the thought was, if I pay taxes to the government who is ruling over me right now, then I somehow have to abandon my commitment to God. That like there's a separation between the two. And so you've got this question, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? And then you got the answer that comes from Jesus. Um, Jesus says, hey, bring me a denarius. I understand the hypocrisy that's happening here. I want you to bring me a denarius. Look at verse 15. But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and, and let me look at it. And they brought one and he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. So, so here's the deal, okay? Um, a denarius here, it was a small silver coin. It was worth about a, a day's worth of work. Um, you could buy 12 pounds-ish of wheat with that. So that's the kind of currency that we're talking about from, from one denarius. Um, it might be um, part of like the, the 30 pieces of silver that Jesus gets sold out for later. It's kind of in that same ballpark. And, and so Jesus says, bring me this denarius, um, and here's the big deal about the denarius. The big deer deal was about whose picture, whose likeness, whose image was on the coin. Now, that particular coin of the denarius at the time, it would have had Tiberius Caesar on it. And on one side of the coin, it would have his face. And on that side, it says, Tiberius Caesar, Augustus, son of divine Augustus. And so when you hold that coin you see who's in authority in that moment, 
Who's ruling in that area and how far that coin goes is how far that authority goes. The coin was an indicator of who was, who was in control and the person who was ruling on earth at the time. The ruler that felt the kingdom of the world in that moment. So Jesus says, here's the deal. That's not my image on that coin. So render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him because they couldn't trap him. His answer didn't tie his hands on either side. He didn't agree with the premise. And so the answer is like, gosh, how do you do it again? Like we try, we try to try, but, but it's not working. Because we're always living in this tension between the realities of, of existing in a fallen world and living in this upward call of God's kingdom. We're living in, in two worlds at the same time. Um, as believers, we're citizens of heaven. But we're also citizens of this world. And the tension that we have there sometimes can be really tight. How do we navigate in both of these worlds? How do we stand firm for what we believe in our world that we live in, but also stand firm in the spiritual truth that God has put into our hearts? And there's often tension there. And all throughout the Bible, here's what we read. We read that God is sovereign over the heavens and the earth. We read that he establishes the season and their times. We read that he's sovereign over rulers and he can raise up leaders and he can lower rulers. So there is no instance throughout world history when there has been a ruler who's on the throne that's not in that position because God is out of control. They're in that position because God is in control and he's sovereign over those things. And God has established a lot of things in the world that we live in. And one of the things that he's established is an earthly government under his sovereign rule. And the part of that that we don't really like is that we're supposed to submit to the authority that we're under uh, in the world that we live in. And until up until, so you, you're like, man, is there ever a time for civil disobedience because the world that we live in is kind of, kind of disappointing and we're angry and there's angst and all that kind of stuff? Yeah, there's certainly a time for civil disobedience when there, is, when there is push against your faith that would cause you to walk away from your faith in order to bow down to the king. Um, there is a time for that, but I don't think that's what Jesus is pointing out to right now. Um, he never asks us to choose between our earthly government and his kingdom. It's going to sound tricky for you. You're like, wait a minute, hold on. No, he calls us to choose which one of those is going to rule our hearts. Are, is our heart going to be ruled by the world that we're living in and the statutes of this world? Or is our heart going to be ruled by the kingdom of heaven, by God the Father? And how we align with him impact the horizontal playing field that we have uh, in this world. Which one is going to rule our heart? And I think when we start talking about government and we start talking about um, the church and, and how we interact with the two, um, there's a couple dangers that we see that we can walk into. And there's probably a lot more, but these are two that I thought about was when I was just kind of writing and spending some time with the Lord. Um, I think one of the dangers is that we can go all in on the government. And we can functionally live like the government is our savior and that it can be the fix of all things if we just pull the right strings and we get the right person into office. I, I think it's a dangerous thing when all of our trust goes into the government being our savior. But I also think there's another danger on the other side of that that is just as dangerous is when we can uh, just start acting like the government uh, is, is the ultimate evil and that we reject government and we walk away from it and uh, we forget that the reality that God has established that and we're to live under it, um, under his authority. And I think both of those lead us into dangerous conclusions. Um, but according to this passage, 
Here's what Jesus says. It's not one of those two. We give to Caesar what is Caesar's and we give to God what is God's. We live in our government and give it the honor that it is necessary because God has established it, but we also live in full submission and obedience to God and we give to God what is, what is due him. Well, what's that mean? I think that there is honor that is due on both sides in both kingdoms. Does that make sense to you? Because God has established these, that there is honor that is due on both sides. And so what I wanna do is I wanna see if we can make uh, any application out, out of this so we don't walk away with too much tension here. So how do we apply this? Well, I think first we do what God's or what Jesus says there in verse 17. We give to God what is God's. And so what that means is as believers and as Christians, we gotta recognize that everything that we have Everything in this world, everything that we own, everything that we possess, that it belongs to God. And we are called to honor him with everything that we have, everything that he's given us, all of our lives. We are called to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, all of our soul, all our minds, all of our strength. And so giving God what belongs to him, that means that we are giving him our entire lives. Do you hear me? When he says, give to God what is God's, he made us, he created us. So that means we give him our lives. Everything that we are and everything that we do belongs to him. And if you've never given your life to Jesus, if you're not a part of the kingdom of God yet, that, that, that means that the way that you honor God in the kingdom that we're living in right now is that you give your life to him. Your life belongs to him, whether you wanna agree with it or not. It like, if you don't know him, it's time. It's, it's time to jump into the kingdom. Jesus, I trust you. I trust what you did on the cross. I'm gonna honor you by giving you my life. I'm giving you everything. If you already have trusted Jesus, here, here, here's what that means for you. You give him your whole heart. And this partial fragmented stuff where little bits of our life we hold back in reserve, where our time we hold back in reserve, where our treasure we hold back in reserve, None of these fragmented, like, Lord, I'll give you this much, but I'm not gonna give you everything. If you're a believer, giving God what is his, it's giving our whole heart, everything that we have, worshiping him with everything inside of us and everything around us. So I, I think one of the ways that we apply this is we give God what is God's. It's our life belongs to him. And then secondly, I think we give the Caesar what's Caesar's. <laughs> huh, what, huh? No, we, we, we give the government what is due them. This means that we fulfill our earthly obligations in the authority that we live under right now. And we pay our taxes. We obey the laws of the land. Um, we drive 60 when we want to drive 90. You know what I'm saying? Nobody wants that. But we obey the, the laws of the land. We may not always agree with these laws, but as believers, as Christians, we are called to um, respect and submit to the authorities that God has put in place that we are to be under. Here's what Paul says in Romans 13. He says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities for there is no authority, authority except from God. And those, exist, those that exist have been instituted by God. Do you see what he's saying? That's a hard one for us to, to live under, especially if we, if we try to live independent, like if we're just like, like a rebel at heart and we just wanna do our own thing to put ourselves in submission or authority under anything, like we just don't want that. But God's word says, this is how we live in the kingdom of this earth that we are part citizens of, okay? So then I think thirdly, 
that we live with this eternal perspective, that this world ultimately is not our home. Like we're not gonna be here forever. The, the denarius that uh, Jesus holds in his hand or that they show him, it's got Caesar's image on it. But we know that as believers, that we've been created in the image of God, that we've been stamped with the Holy Spirit inside of us. And so the coin that we have of our life, uh, it's, it's a coin of dependence. It's a coin of belonging to the Lord. And we have worth and we have value. And the question that we have to ask ourselves is how are we gonna spend that coin? How are we gonna spend our life? We're called to live with this eternal perspective that we are citizens of this world, but one day, this is all gonna come to an end. And we're gonna stand before a holy God. And we're to live in that eternal perspective right now. That should be how we live. That's what clears the fog, right? That's what begins to lift things and we're able to see clearly. I live in full submission under the authority of God. I follow him into these places. I know that he's coming back. I know that this world isn't the end. My life belongs to him. Where are our allegiances? And so when this perspective gets blurry and foggy and confused, what happens is we end up running off the road. We lose sight of the line that's keeping us in, in the boundary. And Jesus says, keep your eyes on the priority here. Keep it straight. You're living in two different worlds at the same time and you're to be ruled by me and give honor where it's due. And so let's honor the Lord. Let's honor God. Let's fulfill our obligations as we're, we are led to by the spirit as long as it's not impeding against our faith and we live with an eternal perspective recognizing that we have been created in the image of God and called to be citizens of his kingdom. You, you with me on that? And this is, this is not easy. This is, and Jesus is gonna die here real soon because of this. Um, because of this friction, it's gonna percolate over real soon in the text. We're gonna to get to Easter and he's gonna to go to the cross and he's gonna raise, but there's a lot of tension that, that is boiling up to this point. And, um, we're we're gonna have communion here. And one of the cool things about communion is that we get to look back and we get to be reminded of not just the death, but the life of Jesus that led all the way up to this, right? He, he lived um, a perfect life and grew up a young boy. He became a man and, and we understand that he went to a cross, but he gathered 12 guys around him and said, follow me. I'm gonna show you the direction. I'm gonna show you how to live. And then they sat at a table um, just shortly before he was getting ready to die and said, don't forget what I've been teaching you. Remember what I've been showing you. And ultimately, I'm gonna to go to a cross tomorrow and I'm gonna die. I'm gonna give up my life for you, for the world. You don't understand it right now, but it's gonna happen. And so every time that we get to sit in a room like this and we get to celebrate communion, we are being reminded of the life of Jesus that gives us life. You understand that? And, and so as we have communion here, as brothers and sisters, if, uh, if you're not a believer, like this isn't your thing, okay? Don't, don't stand up and be like, man, I, I just, I'm just gonna feel awkward if I sit here by myself and everybody else is getting up. This is for the body of Christ. Um, th this is for those who have trusted in Jesus and, and, and said, man, I want, I want Jesus. I want his life. I wanna, I wanna be a part of what he's done. I wanna be a part of the kingdom of God. That's not, that's not meant for you if you're not a believer to feel left out, but it's meant to be a catalyst for you to have a conversation with Jesus right now. It's meant for you to get honest with who he is. Um, and so uh, we're, gonna, we're gonna pray. And then um, we have the, the worship team who's coming up and 
they're going to they're gonna lead us in, in, in a worship song. And uh, we have uh, four different uh, stations there. So just go to the table that's closest to you. If you're gluten-free, there are gluten-free options on there. Uh, and uh, take communion um, as a family. If you're here with a family or if you're here as an individual, just spend some time praying. Uh, and then uh, take the bread and the juice um, at, at, as you will at your leisure um, as, as we're spending time here. But here, here's what I'd ask you to remember. As Jesus sat at that table, he, t- he took bread. And, and he held it up. This is Passover meal. And he said, this is my body. So remember this, like this is my body. Um, it, it, it is for you. As often as you gather together like dude, as often as you gather together like this, um, remember me, remember my life. And, and then uh, after uh, a little bit later in that time around the table, he took a cup, um, which had so much significance and meaning during the Passover and he re- redefined it, letting everybody know that he was the fulfillment. He was the Passover lamb. And that he wasn't going to drink that cup again until he drinks it anew with all of us, with the brothers and sisters who have trusted in him in the kingdom of God. And what a picture that is, right? That we will all one day with, with brothers and sisters and saints of old who have been martyred and, and beheaded and sawn into, who have given their life and us who are here right now and we're dead and gone and our kids and their kids are gonna have kids as, as long as the Lord tarries and waits to come. That one day we were gonna sit around the table and we were gonna eat again with the Lord. Is that not exciting? That we're, that we're gonna have that meal with him? And he said, when you do it now, remember me and think about what's coming down the road. And so as uh, you do that, um, think about those things. Would you pray with me? Jesus, thank you so much. Um, Thank you that you are Lord over all, um, that we live as believers um, in two planes, kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God, and the kingdom of this world. And you rule over both. And you can help us navigate how to, um, to walk through all the tricky stuff right now, the things that feel foggy. Would you allow your spirit to guide us into these conversations? Would you allow your spirit to lead us into full submission to you, to stop living fragmented lives where we just hold back in certain areas? Father, would you challenge us this morning to be all in for you, for believers in the room and for those who don't yet know you, that this would be the day that they stake their claim in the ground and say, man, I am all in for you. Jesus, I am yours. Use me. It's in his name we pray.